everybody. We're gathered once again. It's hot down here. Are you? Well, it's appropriate that we're talking about hell. Um, <laughs> it's tonight's going to get really hot, actually, in terms of our study as well. Um, I always, not really with fear and trepidation, but this is a really, it is a difficult subject. But we want to be and remain biblical and be faithful to Scripture. And when you're doing that, at times it gets very difficult. And that's just a plain, you know that. If you're trying to live faithfully as a Christian in this world, it gets hard. And the tendency is to try to, you know, just take off the edge a little bit or you know, maybe kind of go along with the culture. And be, We can't do that. We have to be. We have to be straight, and so I think tonight um, it's going to get a little more intense as we talk about the doctrine of hell. And the reason we're doing this is because, as, as you know, so much, so much of the church today, within the church, let alone outside the church, but even within the church, evangelical churches, they're really kind of um, softening the teaching on on hell. And they're, they're different evangelicals saying that hell's not as bad as you think it is, or it's certainly not going to be eternal, and we're really going to talk about that in a couple of weeks, or eventually everybody's going to get to heaven, that, that kind of thing, which sounds nice. It sounds good. Are you pointing to turn that off? Um, but what we have been doing these last two weeks, we have three more after this, but the last two weeks we've been setting the stage, really, and taking a serious look, really, at the nature of God and the attribute of God, because the, the whole idea is, you know, how could a good God send anybody to hell? That's the big question that's out there and even inside the church. So that's what we're, what we're dealing with. And so we spent that first week, if you remember, talking about who's able to judge rightly. Well, we looked at God and the attributes of God. For those of you that aren't here, I don't know if we have extra outlines. Michelle, you can make some. Uh, from the first two, we could we could hand those out. But we talked about the reality of evil, but then God's presence everywhere. Who's who's able to judge rightly and fairly? And we found out only God can. Why? Because He's present everywhere. There's nowhere you could go to get away from Him. He's the perfect witness, as it were, because He sees everything. Uh, his knowledge. He knows everything. We can't get over on Him. We can't fool Him. We can't. He knows our hearts. He knows our motives. He knows every word before we speak it. So he knows us. Um, he has the power to judge. He's, he is sovereign, almighty God. And he has the power and the right to, to judge all creation since he's the creator. Um, God's eternality, again, he has existed before time. We talked about that. He is the um, uncreated creator. and He is the first one has always been. We talked about the immutability of God, uh, that he doesn't change, and that's a good thing. He's not going to change his mind on things. So we, we looked at God's, uh, the attributes of God. So this is, qualifies him to judge. Then last time we talked about, you know, th- the question, how could a loving God send anybody to hell? Well, God is love. Why would he do that? How could he do that? Well, we talked about God's holiness. We spent a lot of time talking about his holiness, that attribute of holiness, will not allow the stain of sin to be in his presence. He has to deal with that. So we talked about his holiness, uh, his love, and we, his love itself, we can't 
distinguish like his 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 attributes. You can't say, well, love is greater than his holiness. No, they all work in concert together. So God's love, his love for holiness and righteousness and justice means that he has to punish sin. And he does that in hell. So um, we talked about that and his righteousness, that he is righteous and perfectly just in every single way. So those are the first two weeks. Again, I don't... You can listen. Did we tape last week or did, did it go haywire? We tape? Okay, so we're good on that as well. So tonight, um, I don't know how long this is going to take, but we we want to talk about the idea of do we really deserve hell? Does anybody deserve hell? So we're going to look at the human condition especially and then start talking about a couple of questions coming uh, regarding the nature of hell itself. So that's what we're going to do for tonight. Next time, we're off next week because the 4th of July week we're taking off. When we come back, we'll talk about Jesus and what he has to say about hell itself. Because everybody's, oh, the God of the Old Testament, he's the bad, you know, and Jesus is the good. Okay. Jesus says talk more about hell than anybody else in scripture. So we'll look at that. And then the last two weeks, we will tackle those tough objections. And the first one is... Um, that hell's not for eternity. And that's a hard one. I mean, that's a real tempting way to go, that people that can only sin a finite number of times, should they be punished for all eternity? That's the big question, the philosophical question with that. And so you have even evangelical theologians kind of saying, well, no. So the idea is after a certain amount of time, you're just poof, out of existence. You're annihilated. (laughs) And then the the second big objection is um, that... Eventually, yeah, you'll, you, you will spend time in hell, but eventually after you've kind of paid for the sins that you owe, you'll be in heaven. So eventually everybody will be in heaven as well. These are nice thoughts. They are nice thoughts. I mean, but do they square with scripture? And that's our main concern. So let me pray. We'll get into our study tonight. Father in heaven, again, we thank you and praise you so much. And Lord, we know this is such a very... Um, it's in some ways difficult subject, but it's also a glorious subject, Lord, because it is you, Lord God, who is holy, righteous, and just, and loving, and true, and faithful, and gracious, and merciful, Lord God. And and this um, whole um, concept of a punishment is a just ideal that you bring forth, Lord God. And so I just pray that that you help us to have understanding, wisdom, and insight as far as our finite minds can. I know we can understand the the deep mysteries and and even some of the questions that we may have, Lord God. But we know that you are sovereign. We know that you are good. We know that you are holy, righteous, and just. And so, Lord, we look to you this evening for your wisdom, for your grace, and your mercy. And help us to receive this information in a way that's very humble and just understanding our frame before you and who we are, Lord God, um, before a a, a holy and righteous God. So please bless this time for your glory and for our good. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, here we go. Let me get Robin up. Okay, so after the first two weeks of... Laying the groundwork, as it were, and, and, and that's really important tonight. We do want to talk about the human condition. We're gonna we're gonna turn up the heat a little bit, as it were, tonight, as we talk about this doctrine of, of hell. But always remember, in your minds, as we're going through this, always remember that God is holy, 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 perfectly righteous, perfectly just. 
Keep that in the back of your mind because somewhere along the line, beginning tonight and moving on forward, you're going to be saying, but this just doesn't seem fair. And God, But why God this, okay? But remember his holiness and what we've taught you, what you know about God in that regard. And then also at the same time, remember how sinful we are. And we're going to learn about that tonight, not extensively, but you kind of rehashing Thing, teachings you mostly know, but it's important that you understand that that distinction, that dichotomy, just how holy he is and how sinful we are. Because I don't think people really think that. I don't, I don't think people believe that God is that holy and he, he's so jealous for his holiness, holiness and justice that he has to punish sin. Really? That much? Come on, God. And, or I don't believe people think we are as sinful as we are and rebellious as we are. He's a nice guy. He's a helpful person. She's a wonderful woman. You know, at the heart, that's, but that's, it's really important that you get that if you're going to understand this. But then also the third thing you need to remember is how amazing grace is. The amazing grace of God because, truth be told, all of us deserve to be under God's wrath and punishment. We do because of our nature, because of his holiness. So always keep that in mind as well. So, remember all that we learned about God and here we go tonight. So, First of all, obviously, we come from God. God has created us. We are created in the image of God. We owe our entire existence, our entire being, um, everything to God. Now, do you also believe that we owe God, even if you don't know God, do we still owe God our worship, our reverence, our obedience, our honor, and our glory? Do we still owe him that? Um, as part of his creation, yes or no? Is that a trick question? Or no? no, absolutely. No. Well, yeah, exactly. And how can you tell that, that even the pagans in the remotest part of the world know that to a degree? How do, they know, how do we know that they know that, that God deserves to be honored and worshipped? They make up God. That's right, exactly. Everywhere you go, people worship. We are made to worship. We're worshiping people. We're going to worship something. We're going to serve something and say, oh, this is God and that is God. And we know that from Romans 1, 2, general revelation. Okay, so we understand that, we're, that we owe him that. We owe him thanksgiving. You know, we owe him our, our dependence, our obedience. We should seek his will, his ways. We should learn his precepts and his principles. And insofar as we do, even when pagans do that, man, when they borrow from God's grace, and they have to borrow from God's grace because we're made in his image, things go well, generally speaking. Right? Think of our country, our nation for many, many years. We still borrowed from those precepts, biblical precepts. Are we doing that today? Not so much. And look where we're at. Okay, so that's just a real clear example of that. So we owe God this. We're made in his image. And... Um, the, the problem is, is our sin, that we're at enmity apart from our regeneration. Nobody's really good. Like, as Christians, we do want to do all these things. We want to reverence him. We want to honor him. We want to love him, right? I hope so. <laughs> Even though we fail, um, that's, our, that's our desire. I want, to, I want to be completely enveloped by you, Lord, and used by you. That, that's our true desire. And, and so and to be faithful to him. But if you're not a Christian, before you were a Christian, we, we were at enmity with God. That's what the Bible teaches, right? We might give, give him a, you know, a, a nod and a wink or in, in kind of in a tough situation or if we want to make a bargain. But 
we were rebels and we were against God in our lives. So Romans 8, 6, I'll just read this. I'm just going to read some passages. We'll do a little more in-depth study in some of our scriptures, but I just want you to hear this. Romans 8, beginning in verse 6. Paul's talking about our life in the Spirit as Christians, and he says, look, for the mind set on the flesh is death, but to set on the mind of the Spirit is life and peace. See, we're able to do that as Christians. And in verse 7 he says, for the mind set on the flesh is hostile to God. It's hostile to God. For it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. So we are unable as unbelievers to to honor, to please, and to worship, and to to give God his due. Okay, We're just not, there's a total inability to, to do that. That's part of the, when we talk about total depravity, every aspect is tainted by sin. So what I want to do is just impress upon you how sinful we are apart from God, keeping in mind his holiness the whole time as we think um, about the punishment. So the larger catechism, this is the Westminster Larger Catechism. I've handed these out to you. Because I started reading, I'll give you a couple of these. But then I started reading, like, man, this whole section needs to be read and asked and answered questions because it talks about our sin, our sin nature. So just, I'm just going to read these. We're not really going to comment on these, but just for your edification tonight. The question 22 asks, did all mankind follow Adam's first transgression? That is, is everybody sinful? Everybody born by natural generation? The covenant being made with Adam as a public person was not only for himself, but his posterity. All mankind descending from him by ordinary generation. That excludes one person in all of history. That's Jesus Christ. Um, sinned in him and fell with him in, his first, in that first transgression. So then... 23 asks, to what estate did the fall bring mankind? The fall brought all mankind into the estate of sin and misery. What is sin? Sin is anyone of conformity to or transgression of the law of God, given as a rule to the reasonable creature. Wherein consists the sinfulness of the estate to where mankind fell? The sinfulness of that estate to wherein mankind fell consists of the guilt of Adam's first sin. So in Adam, from my mother's womb, I was conceived in sin. The one of original righteousness, wherein he was created. The corruption of his whole nature, that's original sin. Whereby he's utterly indisposed, disabled, and made opposite unto all that is spiritually good. And wholly inclined to all evil, and that continually. That's pretty tough stuff. And that's talking about our spiritual um, position apart from Christ. Which is commonly called original sin, and from which proceeds all actual transgressions. How is original sin conveyed from our first parents unto their posterity? Original sin is conveyed from our first parents unto their posterity by natural generation, that's by birth. So all that are proceed from that from them in that way are conceived and born in sin. So if you trace sin, the nature of sin goes all the way back, all the way back, 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 back. Not just to your parents, grandparents. Like all of us have that commonality with Adam and Eve. So all of us as sinners can trace our sin back to them as our first parents. Okay? Um, what's the misery? What misery did the fall bring upon mankind? The fall brought upon all mankind the loss of communion with God. We're separated from him. His displeasure and curse. So we are by nature children of wrath, bond slaves to Satan, and justly liable to all punishments in this world and that which is to come. Okay. 
What's the punishment of sin in this world? So what are some of the consequences of sin in this world? The punishment of sin in this world are either inward, as blindness of mind, reprobate sense, strong delusions, hardness of heart, horror of conscience, and vile affections, or outward... We could do a whole study on this. I I am reading this tonight, but this is really... It would be really nice to delve into this at at some time. But... uh, um, or outward as a curse of God upon the creatures for our sakes and all other evils that befall our bodies, names, estates, relations, employments, together with death itself. Um, and then what's the punishment of the sin in the world to come? So this is why, like, this is part of the, the consequence of sin, what I just read, in our life, why it's so hard, why we struggle in every area of life, in our minds, in our lives, in our jobs, everywhere. It's a struggle, there's toil, um, consequences for sin. And then what are the punishment of sin in the world to come? The punishment of sin in the world to come are everlasting separation from the comfortable presence of God and most grievous torments in soul and body without intermission and hellfire forever. And there it is. There it is. That's uh, tough stuff. But we're going to kind of unfold this like as we're going through our lesson tonight. Hopefully you'll be referring back to this as well. Listen, we're sinners by nature and choice. I'm just going to pound this in tonight. Um, we rebel. We're rebels. We don't like to be told what to do. It doesn't matter who's telling us. Whether we're little kids and our parents are telling us to clean our rooms or we're on our jobs and they want us to do this, that, the other thing. There's something inside of just our inclination in some ways is just to like push back, whether it's passive aggressive or just outwardly, right? We're rebels, man. We don't like authority that much. Um, we don't like being told how to behave, what to do. We don't like obeying fully and completely. Maybe a little bit. We'll obey to a point, but until you know I'm uncomfortable, then I'm not going to obey. Tony, were you going to say something? Okay. So, how did sin enter the world? Again, we're kind of playing off the catechism or the uh, confession, the larger catechism, a little bit here. How do we get into sin? How do we get into this trouble in the first place? Let's go to Genesis chapter 3. <laughs> I think it's just important for us to do this. I know we, we know, but I want us to see as we get to the area of the consequence of our sin, hopefully it'll make more, you know, make sense to you. It does make sense, but we'll gain more understanding from it. So Genesis chapter 3, and we'll kind of give just like a, a verse by verse, if you want to put it that way, account of fall into sin of our first parents. Um, so verse one. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say to you, you shall not eat of any tree of the garden? Um, so that first verse. We see Satan's approach. And it says that he's. He was um, more crafty. What's that mean? Be crafty. Devious. Sneaky. What, what else? Devious. Devious. You know, subtle, woman's ways to get you, get you to change. And 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 keeping in that spirit, what 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 does he do? Like, what's he do? What's the first thing that he does when he asks a question? Puts doubt in Eve's mind. He challenges God's word. Did God say? That's the first thing. That 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 plays a part in all all in so much of who we are. 
Did God really say this? Is this what God said? And you see it today. People question, even evangelicals, Christians are questioning scripture. Does God really mean that? Did he really say that? Does he really say it's okay to be married if you're not same sex? I mean, to say just, just men and women? Doubt, doubt. That's a trick of Satan. That's what's going on here. He approaches the woman. What's that tell you? Just usurping God's order, right? Who's the head? Who's the male? Who's, who he should have gone to? The man, but what does he do? He, he has no regard for God whatsoever, obviously, so he's going to usurp God's order and approaches the woman. Uh, and there's just a little stated, subtle, there's a craftiness addition to God's word when he says to her, uh, did God say you should not eat of any tree of the garden? Did God say that? You shouldn't eat of any tree of the garden? No, man. See, see that's subtleness, and this little sin comes in. Um... Verses 2 and 3 then. It goes on to say, And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat the fruit of the tree in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that's in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. Um, yeah, we'll stop right there. So, um, what's Eve do by allowing... By, by speaking to Satan, what, what's she doing kind of in her own heart right away? A couple things going on. She's stretching the truth because not only did she say we're not allowed to eat yeah. the tree, we're not allowed to touch it. God didn't say that. That's right. So she adds to God's word. And whenever we add to God's word, that shows that we have contempt for God's word and for God himself. You can't add to it. We can't take away from it. Because once we do that, we're saying, okay, God, that's not enough. Or, God, that's too much. Instead of, okay, God, that's it. Very good. Um, what else? Just by talking to Satan. She gave him credibility. She did. She did. That's exactly right. You, she allowed for conflicting voices to come into her head. What are we supposed to say? What did Jesus say to Peter? Get behind me, Satan. Don't do that. Right? But she... Gave him credibility, gave him gave, gave him a hearing, and that's always a mistake. Once you start listening to the devil or outside voices, chances are you're going to get tripped up, right? You're going to go in that way, um, and you know basically she sets aside the authority of God's word. Right? This is what he told them. So then verses four and five, Satan the liar. We're just zipping through this tonight, right? Just just for context tonight. Uh, verses four and five. Um, let me see. Yeah, four, four and five. So, um, but the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. So, um, wh- what does Satan essentially do here? I think, Jerry, you said it. He, did you say it? When, when he's thinking about God, what, what's, he, what's he saying about God? What's he calling God essentially? That's right. He's the liar calling God the liar, right? And um, she's, she's listening to this the whole time. God, who cannot lie, we saw that last time, um, or the first, first class, she's calling him a liar. And then, what else? Um, he planted the thought in Eve's mind that, that uh, they can be like God. That's right. On his level. That's right. And 
or at the very least, God is withholding something from you. God's not giving you all that you need. There's something that he's holding back from you. And how often do we feel that? And when we sin, so much of our covetousness is that idea. I'm not getting what I deserve. But God's holding something back from me. God, why can't you let me have this? Right? So, so that idea that God is not sufficient. And that's a big, big deal. Okay? So you're very, very right on that as well. He's um, kind of withholding them from reaching their fullest potential. And so what's that fostering between... God and man at this point. You know, planting seeds of doubt in her, distrust. Can I can I really trust God? Dissatisfaction, discontentedness, you know, God's not letting me have this. Why does why can't this just happen? If God really loved me then, see we still do the same things today. God's not good. God's not good. You know, how could a good God put me in this position or allow this to happen? So that that that's exact. You, you can see it falling down, and then um, verse six is really good because it really talks about these categories of sin. Listen, when it says, "So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was desired to make one wise, she took of the fruit and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate as well." So look at verse six. What's it say? Look at the categories of temptation. And they're just like, you know, this, this is timeless stuff. Satan dresses it up in a little different way, you know, depending on the culture, the context, and the time. But when you take all that away and get to the heart of it, this is what it is. She saw that it was good. What's that mean? She saw that it was good. She determined in her mind. Yeah. Yeah. In other words, you shall be as God. Yeah. Which is the problem today. That's the problem. If you're God, you don't have to. If you're God, you don't have to listen to God. You know, um, oh, what's the quote? It's such a good one. Alistair Begg said it. It was so good. It's so good. Um, I gotta find it because it's... Uh, let me try to find it real quick. Oh, I'll look for it. But Alistair Begg, it's, it's a, just a wonderful quote. God created us in his own image, and then man, after the fall, decided to return the favor or something like that. That's a, <laughs> something to that effect, but it's really, really a good one. Um, but that's but that's basically it, um, that 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 she thought it would be helpful, right? That that this is what needed in order to be fulfilled. Right? God's not enough. So she saw that it was good. If something's good for you, then you want that because it's going to be helpful to me. Right? It's good. And something that seemed good to her. Then it goes on. It was a delight to the eyes. What is it about sin? One of the things that tempts us for sin all the time. It looks good. It looks so good. It looks so good. If you're a glutton, it just looks so good. If you're in, you know, immorality, sexual immorality, it looks so good. You know, everything looks so good. Everything looks so beautiful. Uh, And and it's it's speaking literally, but also metaphorically. Metaphorically as well, spiritually well. Like it seems good, and that's a delight to the eyes. It just looks so good. And look at that man. It's, it looks so. T- How could that be bad? How can it be a bad thing when it just looks and feels so right, kind of thing? So it's a delight to the eyes, and that's the way it gets in. How, how could that be bad? And then um, it desire desire to make one wise. What's that speak to um, in our heart of hearts? Again, it kind of gets back to. How we're wired before God, like I think, like pride, right? That's kind of the foremost thing. It's it, it's it's going to make me wise. It's going to 
You know, God's not enough, and this is what it's all about. God's not sufficient, so this is going to make me wise. So, eating the fruit was a culmination that sin of sin that first began in the heart when they determined they no longer needed the word of God. And that's what separates from God. So you see how heinous that is right away. God sets them up. Beautiful. One commandment. You can eat them any tree. Don't eat the tree of knowledge of good and evil. The day you do that, you will die. There will be that separation. But they, of their free will, did it as well. Um, and then in verse 5, her husband also ate the fruit. What's that tell us about Adam, who was created first, who is the head, who is to lead, to protect, provide for uh, his wife? What's that tell us about him at that time? Where was Adam? Right there with her. Yeah, like I always thought, you know, kind of growing up, well, the, the, Satan took us, you know, slithering around and then kind of finding Eve and isolating her from her husband. Mm-hmm. If only, right? He was right there. So he allowed his position, his authority to be usurped. Again, thinking about Jesus. What did Jesus do? Get behind me, Satan. What did Jesus do when they came in the garden to get him? And they were looking for him. I am he. You guys stay behind. And what did the people do when they came? They had to bow down and worship him. Gives me chills. Um, But Adam didn't do that. Adam did not do that. He just let her go. He failed to take his rightful place as spiritual lead. 2 Timothy 2, um, 1 Corinthians 11, and so on. So, obviously, sin drastically changed their outlook and their behavior. Uh, It wasn't gradual, but very sudden. So, uh, very quickly, verses 7 and 8, and it says, Then the eyes of both of them were opened, they were naked, they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together to make themselves long. What did they try to do right away once they knew that they were in sin? Hide, but even before that, when he sewed the loincloths. Cover. Shame. Shame. But also trying to save himself. That's what they're doing, man. Because now, and that's what man's been trying to do ever since the fall. Well, I'm going to make this right. I'm going to do what I need to do. I'm going to find my way of salvation. They sewed those loincloths up. Because all that's true about the shame. They knew they were naked. But notice what God did. He comes along and he makes a sacrifice, covers them with animal skin. And that's kind of the picture pointing to the redemption of Jesus Christ. Then you have the unfolding. But man always tries to save himself. I don't even need God. I'm going to do this for myself. I'm going to cover my own sin or my own shame. That's what we try to do. What do you have to do to get to heaven? Try to do my best. I work really hard. I'm a nice person. That's what they're doing. They're making those loincloths for themselves in a sense. But it is also to cover. There's a lot of implications I really can't get into tonight because that's not the point of this. But also, where does the foolishness of sin come in? Like, sin is so foolish, too. How do we see that foolishness coming in here? What did they try to do? Um, somebody said it earlier. Hide. <laughs> As if you can hide from God. We're going to run and we're going to... But that's exactly what we're trying to do right now. How many of you guys, when you, we just run away from God. We don't want to know the consequences. We don't want to hear when people say, you know, before you were a Christian and people started talking to you about God, what did you do? You ran. You're running. I'll be okay. I'll just do better. You know, I'll do the best that I can and hope that it's enough, just like every other religion. Right? So that's it. It goes right back to to the garden. But then we see the goodness of God. Um, very quickly, he says, 
Um, so they, they, they heard the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. But the Lord called to the man and said to him, where are you? He said, I heard the sound of you in the garden. I was afraid because I was naked. I hid myself. He said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, the woman you gave me, of course, there it is, um, gave me the fruit. It's been going on ever since, right? <laughs> this woman you've given me. Um, yeah, but notice, because a man will sell out his wife in a minute. The wives are usually like very loyal to their husband, generally speaking. I know things are changing these days, but the women are always protected. They're going to protect their kids. They're going to protect their husbands. She has not blame the husband. She says, this dumb man you gave me. Who wouldn't protect me? said, no, 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 it's a serpent that came. So wives still have that kind of protective um, idea for their husbands. The husband's like, it's this woman, man. And Generally speaking, again, it's starting to change because the sinfulness that's among, among us. But um, So calling them, what's that demonstrate in the midst of their sin? So right then, they, they deserved to die physically, spiritually separated from God. All the implications of what death means. But where do we see the grace of God when he calls their names? He calls us by name when he saves us. So that's a picture of that. He seeks us. Nobody seeks after God. Don't, don't be fooled. You might be, as he's leading you to himself, you kind of might, yeah, I'm searching. But for the most part, if you think about your salvation, who found who here? You know what I mean? Who called who? Uh, I, you know, I could talk about our our. our Salvation, our testimonies in that way. It always comes down to, well, you know, God opened my eyes. I saw God. Um, his question had to do with their spiritual condition, not their physical location. When he asks, where are you? They were lost at that point. And God calling Adam indicates what? See, he didn't say, what did he say? What did he say? He said, and the Lord's and his wife, the Lord called to the man and he said to him. What's that tell us? That's right. That's why men, we're responsible for our wives, no matter what, for our families. We will give an answer. We'll give an account. God calling Adam indicates that he's ultimately responsible, even though Eve ate. And we see this again in First Timothy as well. Um, so, and also Romans 5. Um God, check it out. Satan approached the woman. God called the man and to hold him to account. And so that, that fall, again, Adam indirectly, indirectly blames God, the wife that you've given to me. The wife, um, he blames his wife directly. Eve equally is responsible, but she blames the serpent, not her husband. Judgment is pronounced uh, regarding the devil. And then grace is given. Genesis 3.15, that's the proto-evangelion that he'll said. Um, the seed of the woman to crush the head of the serpent. So that's a big, big deal, like how we fell into sin. But, but we have to realize how serious that fall is, what it did, what it deserves, what it merits, the, the effects of our sin. And I kind of want to get to that. Um, when, when we read from the, cat, the catechism and we talked about original sin. What is original sin? Does anybody know? Generally, original sin. The easy answer is the first sin. And that's kind of true. That's the first. But theologically, that term original sin 
refers to the fact that sin affects every aspect of our being. You understand? Every single aspect of your being has been affected by sin. So our minds... When you're born, we don't think God's thoughts after him, do we? No, you don't come out thinking God's thoughts after him. We don't view the world the way God views the world from scripture. You know, some people, again, even if you're not a Christian, more or less might have values or whatever, but we don't view it. Our minds are affected. I'm not going to read it because our time is just slipping away and we have a lot more to go here. Um, But Ephesians 4.18 says, they were darkened. In their understanding, right? Our minds are, we don't see things through the clear lens of the scripture as God sees them. So it's distorted. It's We make it glimpses here and there, but there's, but it's, we're falling. Um, Romans 1, 21 through 23. I do have to read that just for context. Uh, Romans 1. And of course, God's talking about the judgment, a general revelation that we all know him and we suppress the truth and unrighteousness. And then in verse 21, he says this. For although they knew God, they didn't honor him as God or give thanks to him, but became futile in their thinking. See, our mind is affected by sin. We become futile in our thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened, claiming to be wise, they became fools, exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man, birds, animals, and creeping things. So it affects our mind. A sin affects our will, doesn't it? It's like well, there's just a natural bent towards sinning. Do you have to teach a little kid how to be sinful? How to sin? No. I know there's some learned behavior, but before they learn anything, they're still. <laughs> we, our granddaughter, our kids are seeing this firsthand with our baby granddaughter, right? <laughs> you can see, wow, where'd that come from? You know, mommy never did that. It's our simple nature. It's just there. And that rebellion, that natural rebellion to the Lord, but that's the bondage of the will. We are inclined towards sin. There's a bent towards sin. There's a bent towards rebellion. Just like I said earlier, we don't want to be told what to do. You know, we, don't, we hate obeying orders. We will to a point insofar as it serves us, but we're going to have a breaking point. Kind of thing. And we're just going to rebel. If we want it bad enough, we're going to get it. We're going to do it anyway. That's who we are. Sin affects us. And just remember, the, the, the relationship to a holy God, as we think about hell, hell is still here, over here. We're getting there. Um, our emotions. Our emotions are affected. How's that happen? Are we allowed to be angry as Christians, as, as people? Are we allowed to get angry? Yes. Yeah, of course. But what? But do not sin in your anger. How many of us have sinful anger? And you just blow up and that's just it and just gonna rip that part. Our emotions are affected. Our love is is disordered at times. Sometimes love is wonderful in the context of love. We want to be loved. It's wonderful to be loved in that way. But there's wrong, disordered kind of love, and that's a big, big deal these days. Come and hear my sermon on Sunday or listen to Luke's flat last week for sure. <laughs> But even mine, because we're going to talk about this idea of, you know, this whole idea of love is love. And love, God defines love and what love is and the parameters of love and the proper expression of love. Doesn't mean just because I'm obsessed with this person and stalking this person because I love this person, I can't, that's disordered love. I mean, that's not really what love is. Or, you know, I love certain things that are just detrimental and just bad. That's not, but that's a disordered view. It's affected by sin. 
Our bodies, of course, we get sick, we break down, and of course death, which is the penalty for sin. So all these things show us that we are sinners, that we're rebels against God. I'm just piling on, I'm just piling on, because remember the holiness of God, and here's our sinfulness. Um, what kind of sins do we commit? Two general kinds uh, in, in regards to God's law. What do we do with God's law when we see the commandments? Two kinds of sins. Two, two ways that we sin regarding the law of God. Easy. Disobey it. Yes. Okay? That's a sin of commission. 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 And what's the other one? Omission. Omission. Two sides of the same coin. If one does, if the left doesn't get you, the right one will, right? That's the idea. So we're, there's God's law, and, 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 and we're, when, when we break that law, when we do that which we ought not do, okay? So uh, when I transgress, when, when I lie, when I cheat, when I steal, when this is willful, you know, the, the immorality, sins of immorality, we, we are transgressing the law. God says, do not, and we do. Uh, well, but what about omission? What's that? That's what Adam did in the garden. <sighs> well, that's right. That's a perfect example. I didn't even think of that one. That's really good. What should have? What he, ought to have Adam have done? He should have stopped. He should have stopped her. Omission. He didn't do the right thing according to God's law. Not just what he thinks is right, but what is actually right. When we fail to do that which is right. So that puts everybody in. You could say, well, I tried, like the, the rich young ruler. I've done this, I've done that, I've done that. Okay, go sell everything you have. It's, we're going to get it somewhere along the line. But, but omission, um, you know what? When you don't honor God, how many people that you know that aren't Christians give thanks when they eat food? I mean, really give thanks. Not this little God is great, God is good, let us thank you for our food type of thing. I mean, really honor God. How many of you did that before you were a Christian? You get your food and you just start eating without even thinking about it. That without God, you you have no you won't even have that food. Right? And I know some people are thankful for a piece of bread, but are really thankful to God and give thanks for this bread, Lord God, because you're holy and you supply my need. What unbeliever would do that? See, that's omission. You can't escape it. It's just I'm, we're going to be buried in sin in a minute, and I just we are getting buried, and I just want you to know that because. Because when we think about hell, well, how, why could we? Why should we be sent to hell? I'm telling you why. We don't honor. We don't thank him. Um, when we know the correct thing to do but refuse to do it, why do you think people get so mad when somebody doesn't report abuse? Well, you knew that was going on, but you didn't say anything. Why not? Oh, I don't want to get in trouble. You know, I, I was afraid what might happen. Retribution. Something might happen to me. Whatever. You didn't do it. You should have. You knew it was the right thing to do. Um, protecting the vulnerable and the weak. So what's the sixth commandment? Thou shalt not murder. murder. Okay? We know as Christians, say, well, of course you shouldn't murder. I'm not going to take somebody's life wantonly, you know, in a, in a sinful way. We know that. But do you know that you're obligated as a Christian to protect life when you have the opportunity to do so? And when you fail to do that, that's a sin of omission. So why do you think people get so upset when they see somebody getting kidnapped or beaten on a train and nobody intervenes, nobody does anything? We know in our hearts it's, it's, that the right thing to do is to, to come in and to intervene or at least to call the police. 
You know, you see that this happening over there. Somebody's being abducted. Well, it's none of my business. I don't want to get in trouble. I might get hurt. That's omission. Because you're not protecting life when you have the opportunity to do that. Do you understand? So you say, well, I never killed anybody. All right. See? All right. Um, we could read Ephesians 2, 5. We're zipping through here. Ephesians 2, 1 through 5. We go to Scripture again. This talks about our condition that we're born in and against God. Paul says, now he's talking to Christians, those who've been converted, like I'm talking to you, you're in Christ tonight, and says, look, you were, past tense, dead in your sins and what you once walked, following the course of this world. And when he starts talking about world, there's different ways to use world, like geographically, you know, like the world, the universe, um, or each individual, like people, people of the world. The third way is kind of the, the spiritual realm, the, the ruler of this world, the the um, ways of the world. You know what people say? This is the way of the world. That This is how it works. This stuff. And that's what that indicates here, uh, apart from God, that, that you were uh, walking to the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body. We did. Don't touch my body. This is what I want to do. What are you going to tell me? Whatever that is, gluttony, alcohol, or drugs, whatever we want to do, we're going to do. Uh, and the mind, the way we're going to think is the way we're going to think. And we're by nature, there's that in Adam, by nature, children of wrath, even as the rest of mankind. And then it goes on to talk about God's grace. Um, I'm not going to read Romans 3, 9, 18 through 23. You know what? I forgot to mention this. I'm kind of off the the um, the outline tonight a little bit. I had I made these outlines way too early. I had them done like three weeks ago. Everything changed since then. So your outline's gonna not necessarily jive with with everything going on tonight a little bit. Uh, this poor Michelle's trying to follow that. Like, where's this pastor going? <laughs> He's like, Did I type the wrong notes, Pastor? That's what she's saying. What did you give me? I'm off. The uh, course, whatever it is. Um, I'm freelancing here. But I really want to get this across. So, um, you know what? For a fact, we do need to read Romans. Let's go back to Romans 3. Because we're talking about the seriousness and the depth of our sin against God. Um, So Romans chapter 3. And again, you're familiar with most of these verses. But he's talking about... Our sinful estate. And I'll just begin in verse 9. He says, What then? Are the Jews any better off because they had all the advantages? No, 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 no. Not at all. We've already charged that both Jews and Greeks are under sin, as it's written. And now Paul takes aspects, mostly the Psalms from the Old Testament, different Psalms, and puts it together to describe our sinful nature. There's no one righteous. Not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. In the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. That describes us apart from God. And when God removes his restraint, because some of these things you might say, well, maybe not, maybe not some of this. Listen, when God removes the restraints, 
This is exactly what happens. This is when we feel that. How many people today fear God? Nobody. There was a time in the past, even if you weren't a Christian, well, we can't do that. We might get busted. Or what's God going to think? Well, that's a sin. You know, a Catholic growing up in that way, you know, that's a mortal sin. Even though we didn't really know what that meant or cared necessarily. You know, just like at those times. That's all gone. That's that's all gone. There's there's very, I wouldn't say all gone. God always has his remnant and his witness. But for the most part, there's no fear of God. I was talking to somebody who was talking about um, Oakland Catholic, which is an all-girls Catholic school, talking about how many, almost, I forget what she said, was nearly a quarter or even maybe close to half of the girls that are identifying as lesbian or trans in the Roman Catholic, in the Catholic, and it's nothing new. This is what's happening. It's, every, it's, it's among us. There's no fear of God in our eyes. So, listen, the bottom line is this. We all reject God and I don't care if you're the nicest person. The nicest person you know still is a sinner, still breaks God's law, still was born in sin. The nicest person you know, because we want to, like, oh, Pastor, you're just talking about those really wicked people. No, I'm talking about us, you know, even the, listen, in thought, word, and in deed, we are sinners in our, in our actions. Everybody has their breaking point with God. If you're not a believer, no, no, no. again, in, in Christ, we still disobey, we sin, but we understand it much better. Like Paul Washer, that wonderful illustration. I'm not going to use that. But listen, everybody has their breaking point with God. Nobody will completely agree with God or obey God if you're not in Christ. You will have your breaking point. And I don't care if it's the little white lies that you tell. But never committed a major sin. Is the nicest person I know. Well, listen. If you talk to that person inside themselves, after a while, they're going to know. They know. I'm a pretty decent person, but I'm not that great. I'm not the person you think I am. If you only knew my thoughts, if you understood how mad I could get or like where my thoughts go and so on and so forth. Um, how many times you hear this? Like, hey, man, I totally disagree with abortion. I would never get one myself. But if somebody else wants to do it, that's, you know, they have their reasons. Personally, I'm not for the, the gay marriage or trans, but you know what? If that's what makes them happy, you know, how many people, how many good people who 10 years ago would have said, that's not right. They knew instinctively, intuitively, that it's not right. But now, because of where we are in the culture, you know, those same good people are saying, oh, love is love. You know, what are we supposed to do? You know, we need to support them and show our love in that way. And, and totally affirm and accept. I'm not saying we abandon them or turn them off. We love them, we respect them, we care for them, but we do not affirm. And we do not say, God is good with this, or I'm okay with that. Can't do that. So, um, who can say that they've honored, love, and served God, obeyed God fully? One person? Anybody here want to take that? Even before you were a Christian? Even though you thought you were pretty good? <laughs> what Christianity does, it shows you how bad we are and how deserving. Of it are. So, um, from before you can remember, um, some people say, well, the good outweighs the bad. What, what would you say to that? I mean, my good, I know that I do a lot of bad. Nobody realizes how much they sin in thought, word, and deed. You were sinning before you even knew how to walk, talk. Right? But what do we say to that when somebody says, I, I think my good outweighs my bad. I'm going to try to be good. God's standard. Exactly. Perfection, right? God's standard. Be perfect. As some, and that one little sin, as we talked about, mars the infinite, holy image of God. Um, 
that sin is indelible. And we talked about, did we use that illustration about the priceless car? You know, somebody, if you're, if you're, if you're in a uh, junkyard and you throw, you scratch a car, will you get any trouble for that? No. no. If you go to Andy's house, well, let's say you have a nice car. If you go to my house, <laughs> and we have my Honda, and you scratch that Honda, that's, that's pretty bad. But if you go on the lot with the most expensive car, the Lamborghini or whatever, the most expensive yeah, car in the world, that high quality, not one little scratch, is infinitely, you're going to get much more trouble for that because that's priceless, that type of thing. Well, see, that's what our sin is like. We have an infinite holy God. And that one sin, it's indelible and it, and it mars. It. And if you just think about your own life, here's the holiness of God, the righteousness of God who can't stand sin, has to punish sin. And you think about putting that scratch in that car. Well, it's just a little scratch. Well, then think about next time you sin, a bigger scratch. And think about all your sins. You're like, what would that car look like by the time you're done thinking of all your sins against that holy and infinite God? Well, what if you sat before God and you, you, you're with the Lord and there was a real film. I don't know if you younger people know what a real film on reels is. <laughs> yeah. um, and you were just sitting there and, and every sinful thought, every sinful word, every sinful action in your life that you, were you transgressed God's law? I was just going, how long would you be sitting there? That's a rhetorical question. But think about that. See what I mean? So when we think about the holiness, righteousness, and justice, it's not just, oh, this one little sin, or I'm trying, maybe this will cancel that out. It's just overwhelming. It's overwhelming. Purely good people do not exist. Nice people, kind people, understanding people, helpful people, sacrificial people. But Jesus said, <coughs> what when the rich young ruler came up to him, what did he say to Jesus? How do you address him? Call him good teacher. What did Jesus say? No one is good except God. No one is good except God. What did we just read in Roman? There's no one who does good, not even one. How many people that you know will you say, but he was such a nice guy. I can't believe he did those twisted things. He, he was a captain of industry. He's a leader in the, in the community. He's a wonderful man. She was a great woman. She did that. See, the heart is more deceptive and deceitful than all else who can understand it. It's so capable at any moment. That's why we have to guard our hearts as Christians and complete, totally examine ourselves because you don't know. You're this far away, an inch away from committing a heinous sin, a sin of opportunity. It doesn't matter. You could be, and again, this happens all the time, all the time, uh, like, I never, people say, well, I never planned on raping that woman, but there I was in the parking lot, and it was dark, and I just had that opportunity, right? Just go for it in that way. Now, some are premeditated and so on and so forth, but a lot of times, it's, that's just our sinful nature. That's just our heart. The only one who's purely good is Jesus Christ, and that's why he came. Amen. There's a little relief for you right now. Okay, back into um, God's punishment of the sinner. It's not just what you do. That deserves a punishment, but it's really who we are. What did R.C. Sproul, quoting from an earlier theologian, theologian said about sinners? We're not sinners because we sin. We sin because we're sinners. That's right. We're not sinners because we sin. It's not like, oh, we sin and we become sinners. We're sinners, so we sin. We're born in 
sin. And, and the things that we do outwardly, also inwardly in our minds, but, but outwardly it's just a manifestation, manifestation of that inward condition. That's what our sin is. It shows us that. Just like death shows that we're under the penalty of sin, that kind of thing. He is perfectly righteous. He's perfectly holy. He's perfectly just. He's perfectly loving. So according to God's nature, and we talked about this last week, God cannot be God if he doesn't punish sin. What kind of a God doesn't punish sin before him? A holy, a righteous God. What kind of a judge doesn't justly punish a heinous crime or crimes altogether? We talked about that last week. That was an example. You hate judges that are on the take. You hate immoral, bad cops. You know, I'll let you off if you do this for me. Because there's that position of authority, that position of justice. And there's something inside of us that just knows it's wrong. So how can we expect God to just let it go? That's why he brings Christ. Always remember the gospel. Amen. Always remember the gospel. That's the good news. That's what he's done for us. But he must punish sin. It's deserved. And he will perfectly, because of who he is, we've talked about this, he will perfectly and fairly and appropriately punish sin. The judgment will be carried out in hell. This is tough. And here's where it gets really hard. Apart from faith in Jesus Christ, and we've talked about this last week in terms of the gospel, what Christ did for us, an unregenerate, unrepentant sinner will spend eternity in hell. Again, when we talk about what Jesus taught about hell, we're going to see that. So I want you to see and understand the gravity, how holy, holy, holy God is, how sinful, sinful, sinful we are, and what we deserve in terms of punishment. Um, that's why there's a desperation to preach the gospel. That's why almost every week, or at least once a month, what do I say when I'm preaching? This is not a game. This isn't a game. Christianity is not a game. This is life and death. It's eternity. And so this should make us desperate to preach the gospel um, as the Lord gives us opportunity. Now, a couple things, and we're going to end here tonight. Um, we have about 15 minutes. And just a couple questions as we move on. Next time we get into the Jesus teaching on hell and look at those passages specifically. But a couple of things that I want to talk about regarding hell. Number one, will people in hell feel true remorse, repentance? Will they want to love God? Will they try to love him? Will they stop sinning once they're in hell? Will they regret and, and have remorse? Um, will they understand and like, oh shucks, I should have trusted in God while they're in hell. Now, this is a big question. We're not going to take a lot of time on it tonight because in two, we're off next week, but in, in two, two sessions, we're going to discuss this more extensively, biblically, um, even theologically, philosophically, the, the, logically, the idea behind it. I just want to touch on it tonight and just get your ideas. What do you think when people um, are sentenced to hell? Do you think right away they're very regretful, remorseful that they're in hell and wish they had another chance? And, you know, I, 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 if I could do this again, I would repent. I, I would love God. What's your inclination on that? No, that's not what scripture, that's not the the uh, teaching of scripture. And um, I did want to find what C.S. Lewis said about that, that, that hell is locked. Do you know that the, the quote from C.S. Lewis, that hell is locked from the inside? Mm-hmm. The people there don't really want to, to, 
to, to come out. And, and there's a rational reason for this as well. Just as when we go to heaven, we'll be glorifying God. Those in hell aren't going to be glorifying God. They're under the wrath of God and their, their hearts aren't, aren't going to be changed. So think of Pharaoh and, and this way. When, when the pressure was on Pharaoh, when the punishments were on Pharaoh, when the plagues were on Pharaoh, what did he do? Okay, let those people go. Did he ever turn trust in God? Now, this is just before death, before being in hell type of thing, but nevertheless. No, he didn't. Once the pressure was off, what did Pharaoh do? Just what was in him came out, you know, and just, I hate you, God, and I'm going to keep these people here. You're not going to take them out. That's kind of the idea. There's never a true repentance remorse. Again, this is this is a little off, but like even think of the demons, the evil ones that are fallen in that way. Are they ever going to be changed? And they have the elect angels, and then you have the demons. When Jesus when Jesus confronted the demons, at times, especially in the Gospel of Mark, what did the demons say to him? Have you come to what? To bother us, to torture us? Is it the time? Right? And they know. They know, but not even that's going to make them like kind of turn to him or, or anything like that. Now it's a little different because we're talking about those entities there. But just for tonight, I think uh, I do want to turn to Luke chapter 16. If you have your Bibles, and because I'm of the, and this is this of the persuasion that there's not that they're going to keep on shaking their fists at God, far from like being repentant or remorseful or. You know, oh man, if I only knew then what I knew now, I would have repented. It's it's not like that. It's more still that anger with God. And we'll see that again in a couple of weeks, the gnashing of teeth, that kind of thing. It's not gnashing just because they're in pain. But when you're really mad, you gnash your teeth. Yes. But doesn't it all come down to the fact, too, that you need God to work on you to even know that you're doing something Yes. Like so he didn't work on them, so he's not going to work on them after. Okay, that's you have my two week from now argument. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> You're thinking ahead, but that's, yeah, we're really going to talk about that idea as well in terms of regeneration, God working in them in that way. So they're still going to be that same way. That's basically you just ruined my two weeks from now. No, I'm just using. That's wonderful. We'll talk more about that in depth. But just for tonight, um, what did I say to turn to Luke chapter 16, and you know, um, this is the parable of, of the rich man and and. Lazarus, yeah, and again, take keeping in mind it's a parable, but the but the principle and the ideas is the same. And so, um, boy, I lost my good Bible. Do you, did anybody see my Bible? <laughs> it's it's a beautiful ESV large print. Yeah, and I I think I left it here last week, but now I have my dinky Bible. I mean, you know, the little small print. <laughs> I can't get to the right page fast enough and you know I have to put my readers on to read it I think I left it here I checked upstairs okay so Luke um, chapter 16 and beginning in verse 19 let's start there right at the beginning of it and there's a rich man who was clothed in purple fine linen fasted sumptuously every single day and at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus covered with sores who desired to be fed from what fell from the rich man's table moreover even the dogs came and licked the sores and that's a real insult if you know anything it's not like dogs today where we kind of worship our dogs no offense if you have or our pets <laughs> you know, they're like you know um, I just know a guy that spent ten thousand dollars on a dog that might live two weeks but anyway that's beside the point that was my nephew, actually. But anyway, um, 
The poor man died and was carried. But this was an insult. The dogs are just not, that's as low as you could go. That's the biggest insult you could give somebody to call them a dog in that way. They were dirty and despised. But anyway. Um, the poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades being in torment. And he lifted up his eyes and he saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. And send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in the water in the water and cool my tongue from an anguish in the flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things, and Lazarus in like manner bad things. But now he's comforted here, and you're in anguish. And besides all this, between between us is fixed a great chasm that has been fixed, in order that those who would pass from here to you might not may not be able, and none may cross from there to us. And he said, And I beg you, Father, to send to my father's house, for I have five brothers so that he may warn them, lest they also come to this place of torment. But Abram said, They have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. And he said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes from the dead, they'll repent. He said to them, If they don't, if they don't hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should be raised from the dead. Wow, how's that? You talk about the depravity in our heart of sin, that we need to be regenerated by Christ. But I um, just want to touch on here rather quickly. Um, in, in in this parable and in this the idea here that a couple of things. The first thing is that um, the, what do we notice about Lazarus? Do, do we notice like his nature being changed um, da, down there? Did look? Did he beg for forgiveness, like from even from Lazarus or from God? No, he just said, "Give me some relief." You know, give me relief from this. And that's kind of what people want. Of course, I just just get me out of this hellhole. Just, you know, get me out of here. I, you know, forget about really believing or trusting or seeking forgiveness or being driven to repentance. It's just like, give me some relief. So that's number one indication that that he that he um, that he didn't look for forgiveness. He wasn't looking for forgiveness in that place of torment, just a way out and not the right way, you know, um, and then, and, and also the suggestion, when he talks about his brothers, that, that they be warned. Um, what, what's that say? Like, he, he wanted his brothers to be warned, warned. That, again, betrays a lack of, like, t- to warn them about this place. But again, it betrays like a lack of repentance on his part or, or, or preaching that. It, it, it almost like when you think about it, it almost implies that he ended up in hell because God didn't provide sufficient warning. Right. That's what I guess I'm trying to say. He didn't warn us enough. Really? Really? You had the whole decimal. You had the prophets. You had the you had the warning. You had everything that you needed. But again, it's not like. Forgiveness or seeking anything like that, just like, you know, not enough information given, right? There's enough information given. So that's that's the kind of the second thing to be thinking about in terms of having real remorse and hell, real repentance, and, and wanting to be with in the presence of God. And also check this out. He said, like Abram said, um, and then with these glasses, I have to get really close because it's blurry far away. Okay, um, he said. Let's see. Um, my brothers, lest they come. But Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them come. And he said, what did he say to Abraham? 
He said no. Right? He said no. He disagreed with Abraham, with with Abraham's assertion that the Bible was enough, that the law of Moses was enough. See that? This is, that's not a heart of repentance. That's not like remorseful. That's not, you know, oh God, please, I know it now. I, I messed up big time. There's still that rebellion there. God didn't give me enough information. This, this idea, the law of Moses is not sufficient. No, somebody has to go back and tell them. Right? Tell them that. And he says, no, 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 no. If they don't believe in the law, that's not enough. So yeah. it's not that he's like repenting or anything. It's like, save me from the consequences of my sin. Like, get me out of this situation. Exactly, exactly. But not just like because I hate being here in this hell or even warn them in, in, in this way not, not, to, not to come here. Instead of like, you know, have them believe, preach the gospel to them. Just like warn them about this place. And when he's saying that, it's, it's, it's as if he's saying, well, God... There's not sufficient, like God hasn't given us sufficient warning. How many times do we preach about hell? How many times do we tell, every time we tell the gospel, we are sinners, here's what we deserve. Over and over and over again. But I didn't think it would be like this. I didn't expect this. You know, even if you tell, the law of Moses, when he talks about that, basically, technically the first five books, but generally it's the whole Old Testament. You know, that's what's contained, contained there. They had it, but but he's saying this isn't sufficient enough. Go back and tell them. Go back and tell them about this place. He said he's not going to believe you. Even neither will they believe. Be convinced that somebody should be raised from the dead. Well, how how apparent is that? We tell the people that Jesus rose from the dead on the third day. That's part of our gospel presentation. Every time you talk about the gospel, you have to include our sinfulness, the punishment we deserve, the provision that God has made. The price that he paid on the cross for us, the proof, which is the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And then, what's the last one? I have my five P's, a little track I made, the promise, if you confess with your mouth and believe Jesus is Lord. That's, those are gospel elements, but that he was raised from the dead. How many times have you told that? And people still don't believe. But Jesus rose from the dead. It shows that he's Savior. What? You know, people are going to react differently. So, um, that is, okay, we have like three minutes. Um, and this is just the last idea. Any questions on that? Do you, do you get the idea? So I don't want you to think that people in hell are going to be like, oh, shucks, rats, I missed, if I only had another, they're not. And you're going to see, hopefully in a couple of weeks, they're still shaking their fist at God, even in hell. Okay. Um, and the last thing we'll talk about tonight uh, is, is in terms of degrees of punishment. I think this is where people have problems too. Um, not as big as eternity in hell. That's a big one. But the, the degree of punishment in hell. What do you guys think from your understanding of scripture and knowledge? Do you think there's hotter places in hell? Do you think there's levels of, of, of degrees of, of punishment for some sins and for some of those in hell and not others? Yeah, yeah, and and I and I don't want to take consolation necessarily, because no way, there's no way to sugarcoat it, guys. There's no way to sugarcoat it. Hell is suffering in hell will be severe, will be painful, and will be everlasting. And that's why we preach the gospel with such urgency. And you're going to see next time we talk about Jesus, what He says and teaches on it. His holiness, our sin, our rejection of God. Remember that. 
But certainly, it seems that there are degrees of punishment and suffering, and that will be different uh, for, for people in accordance with the measure of one's own sin in their lives. Because the Bible teaches clearly that some sins are more heinous in the sight of God than others. Just like in law. I mean, some people say a sin is a sin. That's true. And that one little sin gets you to hell. Absolutely. We're born in sin. That's already, we already come ready to go to hell. But even the littlest sin that we commit, that first sin shows us we deserve hell, no doubt. But there are degrees of sin that deserve more punishment. Just like in law. Just like, you know, if I, if I you know, swipe a phone, that's, well... That's a bad example. If I swipe, like, these glasses, because if I swipe a phone, it's like first-degree murder, right? <laughs> you deserve that kind of punishment. That's how hard phones are for us today. But if I take, you know, you go, you shoplift something, that's one thing. But if you go armed robbery and you shoot that person and take something, well, there's a little bit more there, isn't there? That's, it's, that's the way it is. And that teaches us something about the way it is um, with the Lord and, and the way he delves out his justice in that way. And also uh, in hell, there's, there's degrees of punishment um, according to one's own sin in his life. And also the gospel light that he rejected. It, it seems that Jesus, we'll look at a couple passages that teach that as well. So if there's some reprieve in some way, that I don't want to make it sound like, oh, that's a wonderful thing. Because it's still going to be punishment. But God is just and will not punish beyond what that person deserved. You understand? And we'll look at a couple passages that, that allude to that. Just like when we go to prison. So if you go to prison, say all of us get arrested. We're all in prison. Say we all broke the law. Pretend this is jail. We're in jail. We're all here for a reason that we broke the law. We deserve to be in jail. But there are some crimes that are committed by some of the in- inmates that are worse than others. They get longer sentences in jail. Even if we're all here for life sentences, Say so we all committed that, that, that kind of sin. Even within that, there's more heinous crimes than others. Some have restricted privileges. Okay, Others, I don't know how wonderful this illustration is, but some have are in solitary confinement. You're not in the general. That's more, um, you have death row inmates that are on death row, that kind of thing. So there's more severe punishments in, in that way. Uh, not all sins are equal. Some are more heinous in the sight of God than others. There are several aggravations more damage, more consequences. You know this in your own life, even as Christians. You may be forgiven for a, you are forgiven for a sin that you committed 30 years ago, but you still might be suffering consequences from that sin. That's just how it is. That's the way that it is, depending on that sin. Again, if I took this, there's probably no consequences by now. The record's expunged. But if there's a, a crime that you committed back then, that has consequences through this day. Does that make sense? Um, how's not a place of, of rehabilitation? It's not a place of obliteration, as we'll see, of evil, but it's retributive justice. The just punishment towards unrepentant sinners. And that's what it is. Um, Fitted to the guilt of each individual offender. So, as we close, we'll just look at uh, several Bible passages that talk about this idea of the amount of knowledge that you have in terms of your punishment, the, the type of sin committed in that way. Just so you you understand that. So even in um, under the wrath of God, it's not just everybody's going to suffer the same amount of punishment at the same time, all the time, that amount. So uh, Matthew 10, um, if you want to turn with me there. Matthew 10. 
And you know the story, uh, beginning in verse 5, this is when Jesus sends out the apostles. He says, now I want you to go among the Gentiles, enter the town of the Samaritans. I'm sorry, do not enter the town of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel and proclaim as you go, saying the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse the lepers, cast out demons. So preach the gospel and do good. Um, You'll receive without you receive without paying, give without pay, acquire no gold, silver or copper for your belts, no bag for your journey, or two tunics or sandals or a staff, for the laborer deserves his food. In whatever town or village you enter, find out who's worthy in there in that town and stay there until you depart. As you enter a house, greet it. If the house is worthy, let your peace come upon it. But if it's not worthy, let your peace return to you. And if anyone will not receive you or listen to your words, Shake off the dust from your feet when you leave that house. Truly I say to you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah than that town. Why would it be more bearable for Sodom and Gomorrah? Which you know Sodom and Gomorrah came under severe, severe judgment from God. Why would it be more bearable? What's that show that it'll be more bearable for those who were in Sodom and Gomorrah doing that, the heinous things they were doing than that town that heard the gospel firsthand from the apostles? What's that tell us about knowledge? There's going to be judgment based on the amount of knowledge that you have and that you rejected in that way. That's why it's very scary when you talk about the progressive Christians or people that are deconstructing their faith. They've tasted of the spirit. They've been involved in the life of the church and, and they are outright rejecting the church. When we were at the gay pride parade and we were witnessing, we talked to the Satanists and they gave us a hearing. We talked to the more liberal kind of you know, Christians but when Laney and Luke talked to the progressive Christian, that was the hardest person to talk to. And, and they're, they're the closest to believing what the Bible actually teaches. They're still far off. But they, they reject everything that we're talking about here tonight um, and everything we believe in that way. So they have that knowledge, in other words. So you really pray for that because they're going to have to give an account for that. Turn over to chapter 11, verses 20 through 24. Um, Again, a similar way. He began to denounce the cities where most of his mighty works had been done because they didn't repent. So here's Jesus preaching, doing the mighty works, the healings, casting out the demons, the miracles that he, prevent, that he provided, produced. He says, Woe to you, Chorazan. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the mighty works in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted in heaven? You will be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I tell you that it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than it will be for you. And so it's not just on that judgment day when he talks about the, the judgment. Of course, that's where it's pronounced, but where that's served. Because they had that knowledge. So on, based on the amount of knowledge you were given and rejected that, there's, there's going to be more of that punishment upon you, the wrath of God. Scary, isn't it, in some ways? And that's why we want to trust in Christ. A few more passages, just over to Matthew 12 now. Um, verses 47 and 48 of Matthew 12. Um, I say, I'm sorry, Luke. I'm no wonder. Luke, 
chapter uh, 12. Luke 12. And verses 47 and 48. And, um, and this is like, he's teaching us that we need to be ready. And he said, the servant who knew his master, master, I'm sorry, and that servant who knew his master's will but did not get ready or act according to his will will receive severe beating. But the one who did not know and did what he, des- I'm sorry, did what he deserved a beating. I'm a- and that servant, verse 47, who knew his master's will but did not get ready or act according to his will will receive a severe beating. But the one who did not know and did what deserved a beating will receive a light beating. Everyone to whom much was given, of him much will be required. And from him whom they entrusted much, they will be uh, more demand, demanded more from him. So um, this is the idea of, of, the, of, of, the, of that knowledge. One more and then we'll be done. Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews 10. And verses 26 through 29. And it's in the context of Christ once for all sacrificing. And he says this. If we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Um, And then he goes on to say, and 28, anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the spirit of grace? So I think that um, <clears throat> all these passages speak to this idea that there are different levels and degrees of punishment but nevertheless hell is very real and that's kind of, this is the teaching of the scripture and this is where it gets tough now we're starting to grind it out and it, it gets very uncomfortable a little bit but this is where we have to stand strong and this is why I labor tonight to try to show well the last two weeks the holiness holiness of God and our sinfulness because when we start to reckon this, some of you are going to think, man, but that's still too much. That's still too much. But when you realize how holy and righteous and just God is and how sinful and rebellious and hard-hearted we are against the Lord, it makes more sense. You could see that um, much more. All the lost will suffer for their sin uh, for the same that... Suffering will be worse for some than for others. That, that, is, that is true. Uh, the reasons for the degree of punishment are the outworking of God's justice. He will judge righteously and he will judge righteous. Acts 17.31, Romans 2.6. They're going to be judged in a righteous way. So this is the idea. And, and again, underneath all of this for us as Christians is, number one, make sure that you're in Jesus Christ, that you're trusting in him and you really love him. Um, I, I, I've said this so many times. As a pastor, one of my biggest fears, 
concerns, the thing that keeps me up at night, that keeps me up at night, because you know we preach the gospel in our church, is that some who've been in church week after week, year after year, will stand before the Lord and say, you know, didn't I do this and didn't I do that? How about all of this? And I went to church every Sunday. And he's going to say, depart from me, I never knew you. Right? And we'll be talking about that next time. But that is that keeps me up at night as a pastor. Um, so we, we make sure you preach the gospel to yourself. Make sure you're in Jesus Christ, that you know him and love him. And then you could have, this obviously, the, the security that comes with that, the assurance of faith. That's That's amazing. Um, number one and number two as God gives you opportunity you got to tell others about Jesus Christ because this is it this is the reality and he might be he uses means and so we don't want to to presume on God oh he has his plan he knows he's going to save of course but we don't want to presume when we have the opportunity we need to tell others about Christ because this is what's at stake. This is why we want to be so urgent. And, and I'm so angry with us because we have this truth. We have the glorious truth that has the answer to everything in life, including what happens after life. And we're so shy about it, or we're so ashamed, or we're so afraid. And then you have these people that have the lies, and they're so proud, and they're so out there, and they're so convicted, and they have such zeal. You know, and they and they they believe in their cause so much, and they're they're evangelizing you. That's what they're doing. You know, when if you're at a BLM march and they say say the name, that's evangelism. That's very spiritual. You know, that that whole thing. That's a that's a spiritual ritual. You're being evangelized. Your kids in school. That's what they're doing. The whole LGBTQ. They're evangelizing, and it's kind of a form, and, and they're very convinced of their position. We should be have that same kind of zeal, that same kind of boldness and courage that they have. Sorry about the sermon there. But anyway, any questions or comments on this? I was thinking, because we the, the, the lie that's coming to the church is that all sin is sin. It has brought in homosexuality, gay marriage. I mean, the big yep. things that are ruining the culture. Not only here, but probably across the world, because the lie from the pulpit is yeah. all sin is sin, and it's true. We, but that's the biggest lie today. It's it equating is. stealing a candy bar yeah. with mutilating the bodies of children. Exactly. You know, yeah. oh, one sin is just like this. no, it's not. There's more sins that are more heinous, and the more heinous the sins are, and accepted shows how far we've rebelled, how far we're in rebellion against God, and how much he's taken his hand off of the off of the nation and let us go under judgment. That should be a wake up call to all of us. You know, some of those sins and they're coming in and they're being, you know, the churches in some evangelical I'm saying some evangelical churches because they're drifting in that way. I'm not just talking about the big liberal churches with the gay flags outside. That's that's a given, you know, the, the progressive churches. But even in evangelical, Southern Baptist churches and circles, it, even with the, the women leading, the preaching, everywhere they're going, they have be, um, so, social justice being taught, more acceptance, side A, side B. There's a Vody sermon, I should send it to all of you, that he preached on uh, this past week, I guess. So good about love, this whole love is love thing. That's another thing. You're saying they're equating God. God loves everything. God loves everyone. That's another. It's the opposite of you know, 
all sin is just the same. Well, God loves everybody just the same and everything just the same. No, he doesn't. You know, there's, that's the fine love. So, um, absolutely. That's why we have to stay strong. And it begins with the leaders in the church. And we have to talk about these things because we're being challenged. Again, from inside the church on these doctrines, you're going to see prominent evangelicals are saying, I'm changing my mind on this whole eternity, eternity and health thing. And they make a good argument. Like they'll, they'll definitely have arguments, and we're going to have to go through those, and you're going to have to wrestle with that. But, um, but that's why part of the reason I wanted to do this, and then after this, in the fall, I do want to do uh, biblical criticism. In other words, people say, how can we trust the Bible as God's word? You know, We have no original manuscripts. We don't have one single original. And you know, we have copies of copies of copies, and how, how do we know those copies aren't corrupted, and so on and so forth. So they're really coming after you in sophisticated ways, you know, more sophisticated arguments. How could a good God send people to hell? How could you really trust this Bible if we don't have these things? What, you know, how could we know for sure? That kind of thing. How do we know which books really belong in the Bible? What about the Gospel of Thomas? How come that's not part of the canon? These are sophisticated attacks that are coming from smart atheists, philosophical atheists, and those inside the church, progressive church. That's why I want to do these kinds of classes. We have to stand really firm on this um, because nobody else is, or very few people are. God has his witnesses, and we're not you know, special. We should just do what we're supposed to be doing. Anything else? All right, thank you so much for your participation, uh, for being here. I hope this is helping a little bit. I'm sorry I went off script tonight, but I just was moved at the last minute. I'm going to pray, and that we will not be meeting next week because it's Fourth of July week, but we'll be convening the Thursday after that. Father in heaven, again, we thank you and praise you so much. I just thank you for this class, and thank you for everybody here just taking the time to come out and, and spend time, Lord God, studying these important matters and being in your word and wanting and desiring to know the truth even though it's difficult at times for us to comprehend, we still give thanks and glory because, Lord, it is you that stand behind all of this. And, and we cannot begin to fathom the, the deep sense of your holiness and your righteousness and your justice. One day it will become clear completely, and there will be no question uh, in, our, in our minds. But for right now, Lord God, help us to not lose faith. Help us to keep trusting in your word. Help us, Lord, not to compromise one single inch, Lord God, with the truth of your precious <coughs> And help us to stand firm on thy word, for thy word is truth. So, Lord, I ask you to, to strengthen us, give us wisdom, understanding. Help us through the, the difficult questions, Lord, with your wisdom and your guidance. And help us to know that you are God, you are righteous, just, holy, almighty God. So I do pray and thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.